Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, climate change, China, and international law. So, Richard, uh, we have President Obama coming off of his recent trip to Asia, having announced on this trip an agreement with China wherein – let me read you the specifics. The US would reduce its level of carbon emissions by 26 to 28 percent by the year 2025. That's from 2005 levels. And the Chinese didn't set specific reduction targets but said that they hope to have their emissions levels peak by 2030, if not sooner. OK, so we can get to the specific terms here momentarily, but, but let's start here on first principles. As you survey all of the contending opinions on global warming, does action on that scale from that agreement strike you as a prudent step? Boy, it's a very tough question to answer. I'm not a professional scientist, but I listen to them all the time. Um, and there is this vision of opinion. The majority basically think that Armageddon is in front of us, and there's a very vocal minority which thinks the opposite. Um, I think it's presumptuous for me to be authoritative on something or to invite other kinds of activities which are foolish uh, no matter what the situation is. So what I try to do is to ask the question, if you're something of a skeptic, what are the kinds of environmental regulations that you want anyhow? And if you could put those in place first, uh, it will sort of reduce the tension between sides. Uh, so let me explain to you why I have the skepticism and then what the arguments are on the other side. If you look at the basically the increase in temperatures from 18 50 to about the present. It's quite clear that they've gone up. Uh, the interesting feature is that most of the increase has taken place, say, between 1950 and 2000, when the carbon dioxide levels were relatively low compared to the orgy of this stuff coming into the atmosphere in the last 15 years. In the last 15 years, if you look at the temperatures, they have now absolutely flattened out uh, so that there's no significant move after the burst of temperature in 1998. So if you didn't know anything about other situations, you would essentially say there's an inverse correlation. The less carbon dioxide that you have, the more rapid the increase. The more carbon dioxide, the less. Now, there's nobody who believes that, and I certainly don't want to sound like it. But what it does do is it forces you to give an explanation as to why the inversion. Uh, the most common one you hear is the absorptive quality of the oceans. And what it does is it picks up the extra heat and it starts to raise temperature. To which, again, the answer starts to be, well, I mean, this absorptive capacity turned out to be available in 1970. And somehow or other, the temperatures went up when there was even more capacity to take it than there is today. So why is it that it kicks in now rather than earlier on? Now, I don't know the answer to that question, but it would be absolutely irresponsible to say uh, that just because I've given two steps in an argument that there isn't a third or a fourth. So what has to happen in this case is I think people have to be a little bit more respectful of each other. I'm almost sick and tired of hearing everybody who essentially is skeptical to be called a denier, as in Holocaust denier, and everybody who thinks it's a serious issue to be called an alarmist, as in some sort of hysterical um, 
person who doesn't have any this taken leave of their senses. I mean, you know, this is a technical question. As a lawyer, I don't claim any scientific expertise, but I do claim the following expertise. I've worked a lot with toxic torts, medical malpractice, drug cases, in which complex changes of causation have always been an issue. And even though I can't generate the information, I could ask questions about it. And I think that's what we want to do. The cure is a different problem, but what we want to do in effect is to avoid being either the alarmist or the denier and try to lower the volume in order to get greater comprehension about this. And that goes for the Republicans in the Senate and the House as it goes for the Democrats. I mean, sort of lowering the volume is something I would like to see on all sides. Now, what's the real upshot of this deal with the Chinese, Richard? This is what we might call a letterhead agreement. There's, there's no mechanism by which to make it binding. <laughs> president's not bringing a treaty back to the Senate. So should we conclude that this is just sort of a public relations move or can this conceivably lay the predicate for something more substantial down the line? Well, anytime the president takes a statute, uh, takes a position, it's a serious act. Um, he may not be able to bind the United States legally in the absence of a treaty, the approval for which he could surely not get today. But it will start to create expectations and moral um, sentiments in favor of doing something about it. And it could ultimately alter the balance. The question about it is, is this the right way in which to do this? I think in terms of presidential authority, it's the same problem we have on immigration and with net neutrality. The man always pushes his power beyond its respectable limits, and he's trying to use the office as a bully pulpit to force other people to do things that they may not want to do. And one of the risks is, of course, is that there'll be a reaction domestically, and the Republicans may pass a joint you know, resolution repudiating what the president does. And since it's a resolution, not a bill, he can't veto it because it never gets to his desk. And at that point, we just increase the domestic fishes. So I don't like things in this fashion. I also don't like this particular agreement. Um, if global warming is a serious problem, I think what we have to do is to figure out what steps that we want to take and figure out how to take them. And the key thing is obviously to deal with dirty coal. China essentially has a huge amount of that stuff. I've been told in effect that there's some kind of political deals out in which the Beijing smog, which will kill people for all sorts of reasons, is attributable in part because crony capitalists in fact control the dirty coal, which is then burnt in Beijing as the local authorities keep their children in Canada or out of harm's way. You don't need to have a treaty to do that. What you have to do is to go to the Chinese government and say, guys, you just have to clean up your act. And if you do this, not only you will lower the risk of global warming, but you will lower thousands of other risks that are associated with coal, um, which are going to damage the lives of your children right now. This is a country in which people go around in gas mess. This is a company where the rich people buy special cleanses for each and every room that they have so they don't have to breathe outside air. They have all sorts of powerful incentives to do it. And I would think it would be nothing short of a disgrace for the Chinese to say, well, since we have another 16 years before we have to turn the curve on this, we want to slow down right now. I think what the president should have said to him is, let's forget about global warming. If you solve your local problems and clean up your unforgivable mess, you will do a very young job in helping the global warming question and we don't have to wait for 16 years where if you take the um, you know the, the bulk of scientific opinion it may well be that things have already turned so in an odd sense it's too little and too late on the domestic side in the United States we are losing um, uh, global warming. Our output per unit of energy is going way up. Um, if you did things sensible like we started nuclear power switch fairly rapidly to 
natural gas instead of coal, switch to clean coal instead of dirty coal, get out of the subsidy business, but certainly encourage um, by putting no obstacles in its path. People who are interested in wind and solar as a supplement to do things, we can lower this stuff there. So what we need to do is to have an open technological market, lots of venture capital, lots of innovation, and no government reaction, and we can do this. And then what both countries have to do is they have to go to India and say, look, what you're doing is absolutely inexcusable and intolerable when you want to increase your production of dirty coal to take care of your poverty problem. There are a thousand things that you can do apart from choking to death that will stop Indian poverty. I wrote a little column in my Hoover thing back in January of this past year explaining how difficult it was to get a cell phone in India given the fact that the entire real estate sector was broken up into a million small pieces, none of which was self-sustaining. All they have to do is be a little bit less protectionist, but a little bit hostile to private education and so forth, and they can make a world of difference without subsidizing dirty coal. So the Chinese, I think, are, are certainly a big disappointment. The Indians are totally really reprehensible, and the president is merely disguised, misguided in my view. So I guess we come out better than either of our two rivals. Richard, if you'll indulge a hypothetical for a moment mm-hmm. because this issue never seems to get addressed honestly in the context of this debate. One of the things that you will hear um, – critics of people who are concerned about climate change say is that, well, this whole thing is really a fig leaf for the fact that these people all want bigger government. Okay, But if you are genuinely concerned about catastrophic climate change without imputing the motives of anyone involved, doesn't it follow that that does actually have to be one of your concerns? Because as you just suggested, you're talking about externalities on an international scale and you have a legitimate collective action problem that seems like it cannot be solved without some Entity exercising almost some level of sovereignty on an international scale is that is that well you have to get treated. I'm absolutely correct. Look, I mean, you know, one of the things about hardline Tea Party libertarians is they don't recognize externalities that require collective action. The problem is that legislation will not do it because it does not bind the world. What you have to do is to start getting treaties. And, you know, we were able to do this with the ozone hole uh, because that was a relatively defined problem, which everybody agreed about the science. We've had pretty good but not great luck with the whaling treaties in the open ocean because the Japanese have been non-cooperators. And it's certainly what you try to do is to get bilateral or trilateral agreements like the president's doing, hope that that will set a precedent, and then you can move other people along the line uh, to doing this. But of course, the Indian holdout problem announced the day of the the Chinese-American situation indicates just how difficult this thing is. What I think you actually have to do more than try and get the treaty is to have people explain to their own people that if they take a series of very well focused steps for dealing with their own internal pollution and energy problem, they will make, as a byproduct of self-interested actions, enormous contributions to controlling the carbon levels. I mean, let me put it to the other way. You know, I gave you what I think to be some of the difficulties in causation that have not been fully addressed, but I don't regard these as an argument of saying, gee, what we really ought to do is to juice up the carbon dioxide production even more. But on the other hand, at least for the short run, recapturing the methane, which is molecule for molecule more dangerous, which is just another name for natural gas, is going to do an enormous amount of good in these things. Uh, So I can tell you how I would reform many American environmental law situations 
so as to favor clean sources over old sources is what the trade-off is. What's so tragic about the president is instead of going to Congress and saying, look, here's a way in which we can improve the lot of everybody, if what we do is we stop grandfathering inefficient sources and give an expedited approval for clean ones so that every time you take a unit of dirty coal off the market, you can substitute for that one-tenth of a unit of clean coal on the market, that would have an enormous impact. But he simply wants to use the EPA framework. What he has to do is to go to Congress and say, look, I've been real stupid about this, but then again, so have you. Here is a blueprint on how it is that we can produce higher levels of energy within our current regulatory framework by switching the emphasis from what it is. But he's so weak on institutional structures and so hostile to the Congress that he won't do it. And unfortunately, the Republicans are so suspicious of the president that they won't do it either. So in some sense, in terms of really sensible regulatory reforms that you could put into place, it's kind of a plague on both your houses. I just wish I could sit down with both these leaders for an hour and explain to them what it is that you ought to do, whether or not you believe in global warming, knowing that it will solve the global warming issue to some extent, or at least help it along, and will stop a lot of other serious local problems which have gone underappreciated. This is essentially, as far as I'm concerned, an intellectual um, tragedy and a political tragedy wrapped around it. One other question that I want to ask you in the reporting on this story, one of the criticisms you'll see, especially on the left, is that, of course, the president can't deal with Congress on this. Look at the people running the joint. And the person whose name always rises to the top of the deck is Senator Jim Inhofe from Oklahoma, who will be the chairman of the Environment and Public Works Committee again in the new Congress. And Inhofe has repeatedly called global warming a hoax. Does it undercut legitimate skepticism of the kind that you expressed to put it in terms that stark? Yeah, I mean, a guy who knows this little about that subject, being that confident about it, um, is really, I think, doing a massive public disservice. Um, yeah, I mean, there are lots of people who protect coal interests. The history of how we've regulated coal is, a, in fact, really very, very bad. First, you insist that people do it because you don't want to take the risk of nuclear. Then you turn around and say, how dare you do that? We're going to shut you down. And so it may well be that you want some compensation payments made to the coal companies that have to be shut down on some of the EPA orders. Many of which I think are justified on cost-benefit terms if at least you ignore the history in there. And this kind of attitude means that the guy's incorrigible. And I think it's just wrong for any Republican to take that position. This is a complicated issue. If you want to assume that everybody on the other side of the debate is in bad faith, uh, then in fact the only person who's in bad faith is you. And this is the same kind of stuff in which you have alarmist against deniers, whereas anybody who, like me, is a classical liberal says externalities are serious problems, Regulation, taxation are perfectly appropriate to deal with these things in principle, but the design of the system is very difficult to do. It's easier to do with sulfur dioxide because it tends to be local. Any particulate matter that sinks to the ground is going to do something. But with carbon dioxide, it all gets mixed up in the atmosphere and it doesn't matter where it comes from. So what you have to do is to think about this in more systematic terms. And I have to say I'm depressed when I hear people like Imhoff talk like that, just the way I'm depressed when I hear the president talk because the evidence I don't think justifies the kind of certitude that he brings to the question on the other side. A little bit of doubt can lead to more serious discussions of institutional arrangements. And again, the first order of business is to adopt those particular proposals that make sense independent of global warming, but provide real advantages in dealing with the possibility it is a problem because that possibility certainly can't be ranked at anything close to zero. 
Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.